0: Hi and welcome back to Women Who Fail. In this episode, episode 10, would you believe, I mean, I did not expect I was going to get this far, I spoke to Michelle Jamison, a proudly working class research psychologist, community activist and author, currently finishing her PhD at the University of Glasgow. Stemming from personal experiences of living with a complex mental health condition, her work has dealt with issues such as The impact of austerity, complex trauma and life outcomes for those living with severe mental illness. Her work has been translated into articles and books as well as affirmative action in community services. Michelle's latest book, The Austerity Cure, The Impact of Benefit Sanctions on Mental Health, was published in February 2020 with Luna Press Publishing. In her spare time, she likes to think of herself as an amateur artist, true crime sleuth and semi-outdoor person. I really hope you enjoy listening to this chat with Michelle. I am talking to Michelle Jameson. You got in touch with me and I just blooming love it when that happens.
1: Yeah, I got in touch with you. I think I must have seen these on Instagram or maybe someone who was talking about an episode on Twitter, I spend most of my time on Instagram and Twitter, not actually doing proper grown-up work. Not that Instagram and Twitter isn't grown-up work, by the way, for all the social media people.
0: (laughs) Exactly, especially people working in the social justice field as well, you know. Yeah. That's that's where you need to be sometimes.
1: Yeah, and I've been kind of wanting to do more, like I've written quite a lot, um, not recorded a lot of stuff, Then I thought, yeah, why
0: not? So, Michelle, um, you are a queer artist, writer—although I want to say author, published <laughs> author—and research psychologist. But you—you you have you self-published your work. Uh, is that right? Was it self-published?
1: Some, like a lot of my creative work, is self-published. But the book was properly published. I say properly published, but published through a publisher.
0: Yeah.
1: A little indie sort of press deal out of Edinburgh called Luna Press Publishing who, if you like horror or sci-fi, get in touch with them. Even though my book isn't horror and sci-fi, it was like a new offshoot into the like, social justice area. Yeah, yeah which is just weird how it came about. But
0: And the, the title of that is The austerity Cure the Impact of the Benefit Sanctions on Mental Health. Yeah. Yep. And we, we will come on to that. But I guess I just want to know, like, what, what, made you, what made you get in touch? You know, the field that you're working in, you have so much to say about it. But what was it that
1: drove that decision? Um, I think firstly what drove it, like even just the podcast name, like Women Who Fail, was first of all really interesting. But I think coming from my background and academic achievement in perspective, I'm not shy about saying that shit about it across social media all the time. I'm very working class. I'm not the traditional person in academia. And in the background, I now work in. So failure is something I am very familiar with. With trying to get where I am, like I know I've got quite a polished social media presence and website, and everything else. And when I look at that, it it doesn't really tell the full picture of mm-hmm. uh, how I got here. And I think that's something that people need to talk about more. Is yeah, you're successful, but for every success, there's probably like I don't know five, ten failed ideas, project, whatever behind it. Yeah, and I just thought it'd be interesting to speak more generally about the journey and everything else. Yeah.
0: And coming from academia as well, I'm thinking, my gosh, if there's any, any role that a person undertakes that requires that certain exterior, um, mm. my goodness, it's academia. Yep. There is a certain look and a certain way of life yes. attached to that. And for you, you, are, you say that you're not that, not, not that usual stereotypical fit when mm. it comes to mm-hmm. academia.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're so right when you say there's a certain look and way to be an academia, especially in my area, which is uh, psychology, public health, um, social sciences. You have to seem very together and know what you're doing. And not to say I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, most of the time, I think I don't know what I'm doing, but that's imposter syndrome. (laughs) Whereas a lot of the time people remind me wait you've been in, you've been in the game for 10 years you actually know what you're doing it doesn't feel like that <laughs> mm. when i say not traditional I, and i suppose also my especially like twitter presence and things i speak about i don't just speak about my research although my research is very heavily influenced by my own lived experiences of several different things um but when i say to touch on like i say i'm not the traditional um academic um it's important to say that I'm still a white Scottish woman, but also still very aware of even just the privilege of getting this far in academia. But also to be aware of everything else that is traditionally everything else within me that's traditionally not seen. I and this is going to sound very tick boxy, (laughs) but I always think it's good for context. So even just things like first Mm. of all, being a a woman in academia is it's changing, but quite rare. The further up you go, the more Cis middle class white men. You see, is the same. Probably the same in every business when you think about it. Hairdressing. I, I say hairdressing because I was actually thinking about this today. Like the amount of women, you know, who are hairdressers, but like the celebrity hairdressers always seem to be men.
0: I'm just uh, thinking about that true. today.
1: This is a bit of a tangent, but it kind of illustrates my point quite nicely. And that was just a complete aside as it came out of my mouth, but it illustrates the point really nicely, I think. First of all, you know, we've been secondly, coming from a very working class background, working class Glaswegian background, I should say. Considering I go to the University of Glasgow at postgraduate level, there is not many working class Glaswegian people in that university. I can name about two other people in the department that I know. There may be more, I'm a bit of a hermit and also work from home all the time now that the pandemic has happened. but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, secondly, I would say the working class thing for me is a big thing because, yeah, there will be many, many more working class people in academia. But as you said, there is the expectation that you kind of hide these bits of yourself underneath an exterior. And for me, Mm. I've just got pretty sick of it. And Mm. I'm just very shouty about being working class in academia because, yeah, I think people need to see that you can get there. Like when I remember myself in secondary school, university was never, never even crossed my minds because first of all I'm first generation in my family to go to university and um, so it was never spoken about even in family circles never mind really friend circles it was just not something that people like me did um, mm-hmm. and it was just never considered an option and then thirdly, fourthly, fifthly, however many times on there's several other identif- identities that I feel i fit into such as queer, disabled um, neurodivergent lived experience of complex mental health all little I don't know if you can swear on this podcast but tiny little shit life events <laughs>
0: go for it that
1: pile up and yeah. top of each other and yeah I live with them but when you think of them separately they're all things that traditionally kept people out of academia or being successful in academia
0: and to just sort of eliminate or disregard or belittle those things that can be mm-hmm. you denying a massive part of you and what is yeah led up to you and to where you, you know, led up to where you are today. Yeah. So you have reached this point, Michelle, where you're like, I ain't going to be quiet about this anymore and why should I? Mm -hmm. And you're, I remember the first time that I spoke to you, you know, I lost count of the number of times that you said the words working class. (laughs) And I thought, my gosh, if there's anyone who is sitting there feeling proud about, Mm -hmm. you know, about their background, it's you. But when did you start standing proud? Because I don't imagine that that has always been the case. But was there yeah. a pivotal moment, or was it a gradual thing? What did that look like?
1: Um, it was probably yeah. You're right. I, was n- I wasn't always as proud to be working class. I did go down the sort of route when I seen myself finishing my undergrad and thinking about masters, like trying to tidy up my accent, and especially in interviews for scholarships and PhDs, tried to come kind of to almost smooth over the working class background mm, yeah. like feeling a little bit ashamed of it which is sad to say because you shouldn't be you shouldn't be ashamed of where you come from but I just felt that I was such an outsider in this very polished academic setting that to get through I had to kind of smooth over these things so the pivotal, the pivotal moment for me I done my undergraduate in University of West of Scotland in Paisley it is a running joke in the West of Scotland that UWS or Paisley University is where working class people go and to all of a sudden move from that to the University of Glasgow in the West End for me was a massive culture shock before I started my master's there I could count on the one hand how many times I'd even been in the West End and it just wasn't the done thing as my mum always used to say why would you go to the West End you don't know anybody there so that's that's where the posh people live and she was right like I had no reason to go to the West End so yeah that was the pivotal and the University of Glasgow I should say like I've been there since 2015 uh, I'm getting my PhD there and I've had a bit of a career there yeah so personally for me and for other working class people I've spoke to it as a bit of a culture shock nothing against the university the university is what it is <laughs> and mm. advertises itself in a very particular way and yeah that was a pivotal moment I think when I got into my PhD and I suddenly felt a little bit of security and I was like yeah I got here my poor supervisors hired me for this PhD God love them I don't need to put my phone voice on anymore I can really start to be more comfortable in myself because as I said like my own life experiences have influenced my research which has been my work up until now so thought, well, why not and also tired I was just a bit tired tired of the facade yeah yeah, just tired of everything so just let it all hang out
0: yeah putting up that front and Mm -hmm. it was interesting there you mentioning the words that your your mum used when you did make that trip into the west end like what what on earth are you going there? What would be your reason for going there? Mm. And and to have those messages at home as well, you know, you kind of they keep your, your glass ceilings, don't they? You know, they, mm. it, it makes you it makes you think that oh my goodness, yeah, those people do those things over there, and I do my mm. thing over here, and those worlds don't collide or cross over So for you to to go to Glasgow Uni and to adjust, you know, that culture shock, like what was that like on a on a day to day level? How did you navigate that?
1: Yeah, I mean it was difficult. The way I sort of contextualize it now, um, and a lot of the stuff that happened to me probably did come from an an innocent place, or they just hadn't thought about it before. Like an example being um, when I taught one of my first classes um, as a what the university term is a graduate teaching assistant. When you do a PhD, you sometimes take on um, a teaching load. I think it was a introduction to some sort of sociological theory seminar I was taking, um, I think it was like second or third year undergrads and I always start off any lecture or talk with like contextualising like i I'm Michelle Jameson, the experience of mental health, working classness, blah 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 everything um, and one of the students very <laughs> innocently asked how I funded my previous masters, I told them I got a scholarship and they were like oh so you got the poor person scholarship then is that why you're here and I was just like the, in fact what actually went through my mind for other fellow Glaswegans is, oh my god, he has such a brass neck, why would he ask me this in front of people? <laughs> and it's just it was just little tiny things like that, which is are obviously nothing in comparison to like microaggressions other people from minor minoritized backgrounds deal with. Yeah. Um and obviously in some ways sometimes people have where they said, have you invited this sort of thing because you are so open about the working classness and mental health difficulties and everything else. But yeah, I, would ju- I, I could just never imagine sitting as a student in front of someone like me and hearing me see these things and then go, wait a minute, can I just ask how you got mm. that poor person funding? <laughs> like, so yeah, I just, so how I dealt with it, I was just kind of dealt with it bluntly. I just dealt with it bluntly. Yeah. And that tended to shut people up yeah but, Yeah, and then I'm also very open to questions I'll also say like whenever you get any questions about stuff like ask me everything I will speak about I'm comfortable speaking about so go for it mm. <laughs> what's what's so unusual about me standing here in front of you why do you think I'm so unusual mm. that's a good, but that's that's a rant for another time <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's part two that comes next year yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no I know but there's there's so much to see and um yeah, it's a shame that we're even sitting here having this conversation about classicism and you mm. being where you are, you know, so close to having your, to getting your PhD or working class background. Definitely. Yeah, it's quite a horrible question to ask, but yeah, like, <laughs> do you feel, do you feel that um, that's worked against you, I guess is what I'm maybe asking in any shape or form
1: because,
0: <clears throat> because of the image that's attached to academia?
1: So far I don't, I say I don't think so but to be honest it probably has in some way but the way I frame it is if it has worked against me with any particular person then I don't want to collaborate or work or be employed by them anyway whether there's plenty of people who have been really supportive, really loved when I've gave talks and it's I've been happy to know that I've provided them with some sort of context that it can be done or something I've said has spoken to them and things like that so that's how i contextualize it
0: um yeah i mean i I don't know what the statistics are for people from working class backgrounds and making up to phd level it'd be really really interesting to know what that what that number looks like i
1: can't can't remember the exact number but it's
0: not it's not a big number procrastination you've mentioned a couple of times so that feels quite quite there
1: Um, yeah it's um Procrastination is terrible. And everyone, I mean, everyone, not just in academia, procrastinates, but I think it's a particular, particularly um, relevant thing for other PhD students. Especially now during the pandemic, like, it's just so hard to, for everyone, It's just I just mm. find it really hard to concentrate. No wonder. It's, at some points, I'd, I literally just sit and think, this is a little bit weird that I'm doing a PhD during a global pandemic. What is normal about this? Nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. Coming on to what you what you mentioned as your second thing that you wanted to talk about, and that was being different. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, being working
0: class, being queer, being disabled, mm-hmm. um, and and what that meant for you within that that environment and that in that context.
1: Yeah.
0: H- how how was that for you? <clears throat> so I would say for
1: quite a long time, like the working classness, and we should probably count how many times we've said working class in this episode. That would be. I will. Should just click. Get a clicker. For a long time, I again tried to smooth things over um, to seem more accepting. Um, but that that also linked into issues I had in um, my personal life where I just spent the longest time, even though I was in psychology and studying this thing, just um, burying stuff very deep down and ignoring it until I had a breakdown. <laughs> and, which don't do kids, don't do that. Go to therapy, speak about it. Um, so in the academy I did spend quite a long time smoothing all that over. So again it wasn't really until I was in the PhD that um, I kind of just let this stuff loose because mm. I came to realise that all this extra stuff made me, not not only me in my private and personal life, but made me a really good researcher, good mm. in my and. I hope that doesn't come off as like tooting my own horn, but I've got stuff out of my research by sharing personal things with participants before and mm. not in an unethical way, but I mm. um, for one of my projects when I was researching impact of benefit sanctions, I was quite open about also experiencing mental health issues and benefit sanctions. So as a result of that I got really, really great um research participants coming forward and sharing mm. things that they also said they would never have shared with a detached uh, researcher who'd never experienced that before so there is a lot to be said with being open about lived experience as much as you're comfortable with because I think it it does show a genuineness and why you're researching what you're researching too many people in the academy research vulnerable traumatized minoritized groups for their own gain it's just a kind of one and done deal they go in they leave they get what they want and again nothing is ever fed back to that group there's no support in place nothing and that's just that's just not me
0: and it kind of i was kind of reminded there of what you said earlier about working with those other people around stats and data um you know admin data and getting annoyed when actually the people behind those stats and numbers were perhaps Mm. forgotten about and not held in mind and um, yes. so the anger is, is completely understandable in that, mm-hmm. in that context.
1: Mm-hmm. I was just about to say, I'm not saying that you can't research something you Thank don't you. live with.
0: Exactly, exactly. You yeah. obviously
1: can, but I think that's been the status quo in the academy for so long that we then see these um, people, these research groups, but these people at the end of the day as something to benefit us in our career, where mm. there's an actual fact we should be doing this research so that they also get something out of it or they at least understand why we're doing it, instead of just going in and, quite frankly, re traumatising whole groups of people just to further our own careers. Mm. And, um, no.
0: That's really difficult. So it's up to you then, Michelle, um, as a researcher, to ensure that something of meaning of use is fed back to those people Mm -hmm. that were responsible for the research and, you know, what you have to present at the end of it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and... Personally, I've always asked um, when I have worked um, with human caseloads, with actual people, and <clears throat> not just numbers. I've always asked, "What do you want to get out of this?" Like, I'm gonna, obviously, I'm getting my dissertation out of this. I'm getting my masters out of this. Whatever. What do you want out of this? How do you want to be told about this? This research that I'm doing. Um, and a good example of that is the book that I published. That came about because I asked the research uh, participants how they wanted that research to come about. And I think two of them said, you know what, it'd be really cool if it was a published book. And I was like, fine, yeah, let's publish it as a book. And then very, very thankfully, uh, very, very thankful to the Lula Press Publishing. I think I just cold emailed them out one day, one night. And I was like, I've done this research and I've seen you're looking for social justice type things. I think this might fit. And they were like, "Yeah, let's do it." It's like, wow.
0: <laughs> now, are you downplaying it? Was it? Was it? Was it that? That's what happened. That that's was the literally what happened. That was the chain yeah. of events.
1: Um, yeah. Because I have, I do have um, some other uh, two other book contracts that I'm meant to be in the midst of writing. I don't know what I was thinking alongside the PhD, and that was a much more traditional where I wrote up um, a traditional uh, synopsis, publisher, writer pack, and sent it to people. Um and won the contracts contracts that way, whether it's with the book that I published was Luna Press Publishing, I literally just emailed them and asked. Um, because at that point I had no idea how the publishing world worked. I still don't. Um but I don't come from a creative writing background or anything like that. So I was mm. like, hello, <laughs> here's some work I've done. <laughs> um and it just so happened that they really liked it. Like that, I fully understand that is not how it goes in the publishing world. Um, mm. And it was probably just sheer luck that I nailed that day, and they read it, and were in a good mood, and they liked it. Oh, I'm quite annoyed. That was your
0: response. They were, they just, they read it. They quite liked it. Oh, I got, got <laughs> okay. them on a good day. It was luck. Yeah. No, perhaps it was actually down to the quality of the work that you presented. The, the fact that it was written in a way that was comprehensible, and it was something that was going to, yeah, obviously make make them money as well. But. Mm. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, God, Yeah, like you can't you can't downplay that kind of stuff. <laughs> you just can't no that's what I always do though.
1: <laughs> and that, that links quite nicely into the working class imposter syndrome of not belonging and it must just all be luck, just pure luck that I've got through ten years of psychology research
0: career. And someday it'll just all come to an end or people will stop yeah. looking at my work in the same way and
1: Yep, just everyone who's been daft to this point to give me time to do my research and that that's something of people struggle with imposter syndrome especially in academia but definitely in other areas of work yeah. and it can,
0: it can be wearing though yeah and it can it can slow you down as well it can really slow you down and I'm wondering how, how, how do you manage it you know is it what's your kind of routine when it comes to dealing with it my
1: routine for dealing with imposter syndrome is probably quite unhealthy because the way I deal with it is I just take on more stuff to do <laughs> don't do that for people listening, don't do that. That is a quick way to to burnout. Um It's only been recently, actually, during the lockdown, that I've actually tried to deal with it. Was actually taking breaks from work and stepping back and not doing anything work related, and I don't know, going on more walks with my dog or mm. writing poetry or everything, everything else. But um, as before, I just my one cure all for everything was more work, and mm. it was it wasn't healthy. It just wasn't healthy.
0: It's a hideous thing that I think holds a lot of women in particular back. And I, and I think we all have our own story when it comes to imposter syndrome and, and where that comes from. But in general, it just affects uh, yeah, so so many of us. What, what does your su- um, support network look like? Um, I'm not necessarily just thinking about people, other humans, but, you know, like, what, what kind of keeps you? What keeps you going?
1: My one go-to is, I just remember, when I was 16, 17, just coming out of school, joined the army, was leaving. And I just think back to how I thought back then. didn't think radically different, but I was just so lost. Like, I didn't know what to do with myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I somehow knew, and not disparaging anyone who was into um, other lines of work that isn't uni, but I, some- and I just knew that I wouldn't be... Fulfilled when the careers advisor was telling me to get a modern apprenticeship or go down a hairdressing job, or just all these things. I just, it just made me really, really angry that I couldn't do more with my life. And I think mm. thinking back to how I felt then still keeps me going when I feel like I'm not good enough or. I'm not getting on with the work I should be getting on with or stuck a, hit a wall or whatever. And I just think, no, you're doing this for you. Mm. I, and that's, that tends to, that's been things that's been keeping me going recently. Is yeah. just think about what like 17, 18 year old you would have thought when you get to introduce yourself as Dr. Jameson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so... But how nice, and what that what that title like holds for you as well, and not yeah. not being ashamed of that doesn't fully define who you are. Mm. But if you want to be proud of that, my God,
1: yeah,
0: why can't you be proud of that?
1: Yeah, I'm really actually, yeah, I really also jokingly always say, as soon as I'm a doctor, then I get to win all the arguments in my family just by saying, uh, hold on a minute, Doctor Jameson speaking. Secondly, just to have a, a non-gendered title so that I can correct, especially men on the high horse. Very looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's more traditional things to look forward to by having a PhD. But see how the
0: economy goes. No, for sure. I, I was kind of uh, having a bit of an internal giggle there when you spoke about the chat with the career advisor. For me, it was I want to I want to become a performer. You know, I want to. I want to. I want to be a dancer. That got met with well, you can't study that in Scotland, and at the time you couldn't, you couldn't get a degree in dance mm. in Scotland. Uh, so I was offered a uh, landscape gardener uh, as another creative outlet. And actually, do you know what? See, even to the, still to this day, I can't stand gardening. I don't think I'll ever love gardening. <laughs> <laughs> it's the equivalent of signing me up to the army, Michelle. That, that's how <laughs> well, resistant I would be to
1: it. It's funny you mention it because I'm, obviously I'm not, I'm not in a very uh, creative profession anymore, but when I was in school, I originally wanted to apply to Glasgow School of Art. I wanted to go to art school uh, for jewellery making. <clears throat> and first of all, I was told with my grades, probably won't get into uni, um, but was not allowed to undertake the portfolio year because... Um, in the words of my art teacher, poor people don't go to art school. Art school is for rich people. And Shoot. I think it was about a week later that the armed forces came to the school and started recruiting people. And yeah, I was, I was probably in quite a low place at the time. <laughs> not di- throughout this whole talk, not disparaging to the creative industries at all. would have loved to go into something creative. I mean, I do it as, as a hobby now anyway, but yeah. Yeah, what were schools thinking back then?
0: Yeah, and also I think it's quite important to say that you are you're thirty. I'll be
1: thirty thirty in April first.
0: Right, so we're talking like that said incident didn't even happen that long ago. No, um, the, two,
1: the the early two thousands.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and I know we had to chat about this um, prior, prior to recording, but yeah, to hear about that experience about. Well, you tell us the, the, the army came to, to your school mm. to deliver a, a careers talk, which all, which all sounds very innocent on the surface. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, less so when you split the year up.
1: Yeah. And yeah, as you say innocent on the surface, like, I mean, first of all, I take nothing to do with the military industrial complex as innocent anymore after 10 years at a uni and now being turned into a liberal leftist, pre-feminist, as my dad says. <laughs> to consider that, so this would have been 2008, 2009, it would have been sixteen, seventeen. So this was, the, the Afghanistan war was still going on, I would say that was probably a massive recruitment drive at the time. They came along to the school, loads of us get taken down to one of the main halls, or the main hall, and it was the, the army, the RAF, the navy, and weirdly the merchant navy, probably the territorial army as well. But we soon realised that everyone there we all kind of knew each other, I we were all kind of from the same area, the same scheme. And we then soon find out later on in the day that other people in the school with, and I should say I went to a school that actually took in from quite an affluent area, but the majority was from um, the more deprived areas. And we found out the students from the more affluent areas or were expected to get or meet grade expectations and um, actually get taken along to a talk by the University of Glasgow. <coughs> And, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. And I think that's probably what's driven a lot of how I am as an academic at that mm. university now. But, yeah, it's, it's quite shocking. And it's not something I speak about a lot, the army talk and join the army, because I was barely in the army. I basically like bounced in and out. Luckily enough, got out to forward like the final signatures and things were made. Mm. Okay. I think I made, like... One train journey, and that was it. Um, so it, it never got very far. But even just to to think that that was allowed, um, and it was sold as very much in the way that you will see the world and you make money. Yeah, you mm. see part of the world and you make money because you're in a war zone. Mm. And you're mm. seventeen. It's it gets more shocking to me the more I go through my own career and begin to realise just everything at play.
0: I can hear how big an effect it has had on you as well, mm-hmm. you know, just the way that you're talking. And, and I, I do wonder, like, how on earth did you handle that at the time, you know, when you were that age and when you came to the, the realisation that you had been um, picked out mm-hmm. and placed mm-hmm. with other people for a certain reason and for you as a collective to all realise that you had all been singled out in that manner. Yeah. And then for you to be resistant at that point, but then to still almost be funneled into that into mm-hmm. that avenue, and thankfully, you know that that wasn't where it where it ended for you. That that, that mm-hmm. you left, but imagine that that wasn't met with some resistance, and that that wasn't yeah. a, quite a challenging um, episode as well.
1: Yeah, it was very challenging, and also nothing against armed forces and that, like mm. obviously something against the military industrial complex and everything that. Um, Social, political stuff that causes sure. us to have armies and wars and everything else. Um, but for the people within the army who do their stuff, nothing against them. They've also been probably picked out, recruited, and sent on their way. And I have spoken to other people who've been through the armed forces as well. But yeah, it just it just makes me really, really angry. And I should also say, I left during this this sort of grace period. I don't think I would even went to the basic training. But basically, I left because I'd went along um, to sign some forms and uh, basically the superiors were sexually inappropriate, so left, Um, which is actually also the experience of the majority of other females who've been in any army that I've spoke to. I've spoke to people out with the British Army as well, and I mean it's easy enough to Google and see the statistics, it's not uncommon. Yeah, it just makes me
0: really sad, actually. Mm. I mean, you think about the age that some some of the the young mm. youngest recruits go in at as well. Mm. You're barely an adult. Yeah, no, of course, I'm. I'm not surprised, and it's it's no surprise as well, Michelle, that your your career is in social justice, and this mm. is where you are today. And you're you're sat here talking to me about yeah. it, and I know I know it's not a pleasant thing to um get to sort of go over again, and I know that you've spoken on other platforms about it. I hope that it is of use to bring it back up again and to talk yeah. about it and to raise awareness of it and I guess just to put it in people's minds.
1: Yeah, that it does yeah. happen in Scotland. I tend to frame this around the fact that um, of Scottish, the myth of Scottish exceptionalism, that Scotland mm-hmm. is this left-wing mm-hmm. utopia without classism, without racism, without everything else when it's blatantly not with Mm-hmm. i.e. statistics on racism, sectarianism and the fact we allow the armed forces to recruit former schools maybe okay. not anymore but it didn't happen that long ago so that tends to be why I speak about these things, it's been
0: useful i certainly learnt a lot from our conversation and there's, there's certainly a few things that um, I, I want to go away and, and have a think about, about as well But mm-hmm. massively appreciate this and I think you're right, I think um, all those kind of darker sides of us and our country, it, they kind of get hidden under this cheery disposition that we're mm. you know, we're all told, but we're happy people. You know, We're, we're lovely people to talk to.
1: And that's why I'm speaking about one well, with experience, I hope, help, in some way, whatever that might be.
0: We're chatting about failure. What are you kind of giving yourself um, permission to fail at next that might be on the horizon for you? Um,
1: I'm giving myself permission to fail at writing, quotation marks, good poetry and permission to fail at instagram which has been a very recent thing um yeah those those have been my two uh, lockdown hobby focuses and um, uh being the imposter syndrome perfectionism person that i am i'm like i need to be good at this right away and obviously i'm not <laughs> so
0: yeah michelle thanks a million thank you <laughs> see you soon i'll see you soon hi and thanks for tuning in today If you live in Scotland and you would like to chat about failure and what it means to you, I would really, really love to hear from you. It's great when I go out there and ask someone to be on the podcast, but I really, really enjoy it when people get in touch with me to have a conversation. If you have someone in mind or you want to go for it yourself, please drop me a message and let's have a conversation. It might be the best thing you think you do this year thanks and see you again soon